Now with the Taliban back in power, the fate of the people of Afghanistan actually rests with the international community. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Is debatably the biggest mess, the most disastrous foreign policy embarrassment in modern U.S. history. No, we're not talking about what the mainstream media is focused on, the state of the American exit from Afghanistan. The images are one thing, but the numbers tell a different story. Tens of thousands of Americans and their allies are out, and the U.S. government is going full tilt Dunkirk, requisitioning private commercial airliners to take out more who want to leave. Know that the truly historic mess is the over 40 years of American intervention in Afghanistan. Winning the war was the easy part for the Taliban. Governing and working with the international community is the hard part, which has just barely begun. The disaster, which is just starting to be mended, started when President Carter's national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, wrote to the president saying, essentially, we now have the opportunity, this is in 1979, we now have the opportunity of giving the USSR its Vietnam War. U.S. policy was to support and build up the Mujahideen, complete with advanced weapons, to give the Soviets a black eye. As with the so-called great game between Russia and the British Empire played out in Afghanistan, the welfare of the people of that nation wasn't even a consideration. So now the U.S. is the latest empire to die in that graveyard of Afghanistan. The many decades of war are over. As was said by Fareed Zakaria, there is no elegant way to lose a war, end of quote. Now the mainstream media is doing one thing that it does well, stoking the flames of fear. A government is now beginning, which has been inevitable in its coming throughout the current war. Will they be brutal, cutting off heads, requiring women to stay home or wear traditional Islamic dress, keeping females from going to work or girls from attending schools? I'm not sure anyone knows the answer, but as our perceptive guest today, Mutasa Hussein, examines in his article in The Intercept, the international response to the Taliban's ascent will shape Afghans' fate. Mutasa Hussein is a reporter at The Intercept who focuses on national security and foreign policy. He's appeared on CNN, BBC, MSNBC, and other news outlets. According to our guest, the Herculean task before the Taliban in shifting from war to governing is avoiding global isolation, repairing their abysmal reputation, and stemming brain drain from the country. Mutasa Hussein, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me. Though we must think with history, the question we'll focus on today is, what is next? When the new leaders have appeared before the international news media, they've struck a surprisingly conciliatory tone. 
And as you note, uh, note, during their previous time in power in Afghanistan from 1996 to 2001, the Taliban, Taliban became international pariahs due to their brutal treatment of women and minorities. And the minorities in Afghanistan are many, including the Sikhs and the Shia Muslims. Destruction of historical landmarks and harboring of international terrorist groups, end of quote. Is it not the same Taliban who have clearly insisted that they will govern according to their interpretation of Islamic law? Is it not reasonable to have, quote, fears about what type of social order they plan to impose on the country and how women and minorities will fare under their rule? What factors might be motivating them now to actually address these fears, Mutaza? Well, there are a number of factors. Uh, first of all, the Taliban has had a very... You know, the, the Afghan war essentially opened Afghanistan up to the forces of globalization in a very violent way, but uh, it occurred nonetheless. In the 1990s, when the Taliban took control of the country, it was in the midst of a horrifying civil war that uh, broke out following the expulsion of the Soviets from the country, where the various uh, Mujahideen forces, which had expelled the Soviets, uh, turned on one another. Many of them were awful warlords who preyed on the population, and they used the weapons they'd been given to set up their own personal fiefdoms. And amid all that uh, horrifying violence, the Taliban emerged initially as the popular movement of students, as the name Taliban refers to their origins as uh, uh, religious seminary students. And uh, their war was against the warlords, and they succeeded in uh, taking control of the country but unfortunately, as we became very known for later on, they imposed their own uh, very theocratic and oppressive rule over Afghanistan. And they made the country, they opened the country up to international terrorist groups, which some of whom uh, inevitably end up using the country to carry out attacks against the United States, uh, ultimately the 9-11 attacks, uh, which the Taliban themselves, there's no indication they ever knew about beforehand, but were nonetheless, it took place on their watch and they suffered the consequences of the 2001 invasion. Now, after that 2001 invasion, Afghanistan was flooded with foreign troops from all over the world, uh, NGOs. There was a gigantic influx of money uh, in various forms directed to the country for various different purposes. And, you know, it changed Afghan society quite a bit. There was quite a transformation, and the Taliban themselves were not immune to these changes. Uh, they fought a war against the United States for 20 years, the most powerful military force on the planet, along with its international and local allies. And as a result of that, they had to really adapt. So they had to open them. They were based in Pakistan for a lot of that time, which is a far less isolated country. Uh, they had to you know, engage in various forms of diplomacy or negotiation. They had to uh, transform their own practices, and uh, both strategically in terms of combat, but also politically in terms of uh, their relations with the world as a whole. And, you know, they've changed. They've become more sophisticated. Now, does this mean that they necessarily are going to govern in a radically different way uh, what they're in power than they did in the 1990s. I think that that's still subject to question. As, as you said, uh, they, they're they certainly saying different things now, and they have said and done things which you never would have imagined doing in the, in the 90s in the sense of uh, their statements about respecting women's rights and the right to go to work and school, and also they took part in some ceremonies for Shia Muslims and Sikhs who... Shia Muslims in particular, they were very oppressive towards when they were last in power in the country. The problem is that there are divisions inside the Taliban. It's uh -huh. a very large, large movement. And, you know, there's a political leadership, much of which spent time abroad during the past several years in Qatar or uh, various other countries, Turkey. 
and you know they were negotiating with the U.S. and the other parties, and their views are somewhat, you could say, moderated or become more pragmatic. And there, there's also the military leadership, which stayed in Afghanistan throughout the time, and they were fighting the war, and they were the ones making these big sacrifices in combat, and they weren't. Uh, they were focused on, you know, fighting the war and sure. prosecuting the war against the U.S. And those people tend to be more hardline on these issues and social issues, and uh-huh. they also. They also have more legitimacy with the rank and file because they can say that, look, we were here fighting the whole time. We weren't just hanging out in Qatar in our nice home or in Dubai or Turkey or wherever else. You know, we are the ones who uh, were here the whole time fighting. So their views are likely to prevail. And it's not so atypical uh, if you look at the movements which have political and armed wings in other scenarios. Uh, it's the armed wing that really gets to have its views uh, become normative sure. so they have the guns so yes and we've certainly seen that with the ira and uh, ireland and many many other places and i had a professor back in college who said that uh, he defined politics as the economy of violence you know who has the guns it really matters now ever since the early 80s the precursors to the taliban and then with the 2001 destruction of the buddha temples of bamiyan which were in Afghanistan, my impression was the Taliban have thumbed their noses at world opinion. It seems like that was a part of the very identity. Your article in Intercept quotes an anonymous source saying of the Taliban, they know they cannot govern Afghanistan without the support of the international community. And as you point out, President Biden suggested the group might be willing to bend to international opinion out of necessity. Now, this is quite a turnaround. Your thoughts about that? Well, you know, look, the Taliban does not want to repeat what happened in 2001 or the early 90s before that when they became an international pariah and the movement was destroyed and the leadership was scattered. Many of them were killed. It was a very painful experience for them. They want to govern Afghanistan as the government of the country and they want their rule to be stable and sustainable as possible. Today, Afghanistan you know, it's been suffered for 40 years from the civil war. It was a poor country before that. It's completely dependent on the you know, goodwill of the international community for, to provide uh, basic, uh, you know, the, the basics of life, but healthcare, food, food insecurity is a huge problem. 80% of the healthcare system is funded by foreign funding. If all that was pulled and they became a pariah internationally mm-hmm. and there were sanctions even applied to the country, it would be a disaster. Millions of people could die. And the government that the U.S. built in the last 20 years was, did not in any sense reflect you know, the interests or needs of ordinary Afghans. It was a small elite of uh, people who collaborated with the you know, foreign occupation of the country, enriched themselves in large part. There are some pockets of urban areas where you know, things did improve for people's lives in Kabul and uh, the other the centers of urban areas, and women's rights did improve. But for the vast majority of people, it's an overwhelmingly rural country. Their lives did not change at all. Their lives got a lot worse because there's a horrible war going on, including women. And uh, so, you know, they have a very big challenge now. And if they can't govern Afghanistan as like they did before, as pariahs, it will just end the same way again, which they don't want. Yeah, for sure. And it's as certainly it's a very large geographic area and it's uh, the uh, it's mountainous the terrain is exceedingly challenging and my sense is 
there's you know there's Kabul, but then there's a whole bunch of separate regions that don't probably have a heck of a lot to do with with the capital city and the central government. I mean, central government. I I I don't know if that's in their tradition at all. And and you write they care about whether or not they can hold together the society that they in fact said they care so much about. I I would guess that there are. You know, it's, as you say, it's not monolithic. Uh, I mean, what political party is? Uh, well, I suppose the Trumpists are now. Uh, I would guess that there are a number of factions within the large group of Taliban's spread out over that very large and diverse geographical area. Could the effort at, at looking good be being done grudgingly? Can they really do this with the sincere enthusiasm that's required? Your thoughts. Uh, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult to say. Um, you know, every movement or every country or every, uh, you know, quasi every paramilitary group in the world now, they're engaged in a very uh, intensive effort at public relations. There's no one who's exempt from this. Um, you could look at, uh, for a contrast example, you look at ISIS. They engage in public relations, but their public relations were aimed at the opposite of most other groups. Public. They were trying to make themselves look as, uh, you know, Unpolatable and as uh, savage and uh, terrible as possible. Now, the Taliban is not interested in that. It seems like they would like to be, they're doing public relations in a way which wants to portray themselves as a part of the international system and would value some degree in line with other countries or at least palatable to them and supportable by them. So, you know, what the reality is in every case is always a bit different from what the perception that goes for the United States is for. Afghanistan, there's no exception to that rule. So I'm assured that there will be some variance between the image that they seek to portray and the reality, especially across a large country of 40 million people inside of Texas. But, you know, what matters more is what people perceive them as. And uh, the effort that they take mm. to portray a certain image will be, in some sense, determinant of that. Yeah, perception is extremely important in politics, Lord knows. And another big factor is money. Money tends to be a significant factor in politics. And as you note, the U.S. government has moved to freeze billions of dollars held by the Afghan government in foreign accounts, while the United Kingdom has indicated that economic sanctions against Afghanistan are on the table, end of quote. During the prior U.S. version of government, as you point out, the U.S. sent weekly dispatches of hard currency to Afghanistan. This, this approach, freezing assets, uh, the U.S. did it when our favorite, the Shah of Iran, was overthrown. We froze their assets and look what they did. We have imposed economic sanctions and blockaded Cuba since its popular revolution in 1959. All I see resulting from that strategy is to make poor people poorer and stiffen the resolve of the government and enable them to blame any and all problems on the U.S. blockade, the outside aggressor. It helps bring great unity. According to your understanding and analysis, how will this tactic work? What effects do you think it will have? Is there any way such an approach might benefit the Western powers? Is there a diplomatic strategy in such approach, or what is this approach? Well, look, uh, you know, the situation now is that the U.S. has withdrawn from Afghanistan. It invested a trillion dollars or more in that country 
20 years of, say, attention and manpower devoted there. And within a week, the entire project fell apart. Literally, the moment that the air cover was pulled from the Afghan security forces, the entire government revealed itself to have had no legitimacy the whole time. The entire thing was a lie. There were 20 years. You can go back and look every year. You can see top military officials, top political officials saying things are going so well. Every year from 2001 onwards, 2002 onwards. Um, and, you know, it was all complete lie. Now, well, not now what? So then, yeah, it was a book I highly recommend was coming out in a few weeks. It's based on the Washington Post reporting on the Afghanistan papers. I just finished reading it yesterday, but it's really an eye-opening documentation of the history of this entire period and the concealed failures based on the documents with that Sudi had released. But, you know, so well, now that this has happened, like, we can't go back and change the past, obviously. So what now? Now, this is Taliban government power. Afghanistan is mostly the same as it was, but not entirely. There are differences. Some people did make uh, life to get better in some areas, in some urban areas. Some uh, there's an elite class created or educated class created in Kabul and other cities. So if the U.S. would like to keep some of the gains it made in that time, it has leverage to do that because it created an Afghan system which is heavily reliant on foreign aid in the first place. So you know, they they could just walk away, you know, they can impose sanctions and the whole thing could collapse and everything go back to the nineties, which were the bad old days in Afghanistan. The country could become more dangerous for uh, you know, the West and so forth. So there could be a refugee crisis, uh, millions of people fleeing the country potentially if it collapses in that sense, or they could use their leverage and uh, learn to compromise a bit and uh, use the financial leverage they have to exert a certain influence over the country preserve it from collapsing, uh, stop the refugee flows that would come towards Europe. You know, they've been cooperating with the Taliban for several years but to fight ISIS, which is a shared enemy of the Taliban and the United States. So the, that co- cooperation can be leveraged to prevent uh, terrorist attacks emanating from Afghanistan against neighboring countries or in the West. Taliban has does not wish to repeat the experience of the 90s where uh, some of its guests, including Al-Qaeda, undertook actions which resulted in the destruction of their government. They do not want that to be repeated. So there's actually quite a few mutual interests here which can be leveraged. Uh, it just depends, you know, what the response of the U.S. will be. And a big problem is that the U.S. elite at the moment is very humiliated by what happened. Mm. It's a very embarrassing, uh, embarrassing turn of events. And they don't seem like they're in any mood for a compromise or for thinking about this, you know, coolly they're angry so you know it depends maybe they'll throw out everything that they even the small bit that they did gain over 20 years at great cost might uh, decide to abandon that as well well you spoke of a few things I, i need to comment on you talk about lies i am so old i lived through the lies of vietnam it was just lie upon lie upon lie constantly saying we were winning the light at the end of the tunnel not true the other thing humiliated there's, you know, there's this whole macho thing about being humiliated. We can't be humiliated. We got to be tough. We got to be strong. 
boy, that that way of thinking, mm, it, it it usually doesn't end well. You know, if we can uh, get over the the uh, hurt of the ego, <laughs> it could be a lot better for everybody involved. For and for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive, and we hope you are participating in your area keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is Mutasa Hussein, who has written in the Intercept. The international response to the Taliban's ascent will shape Afghans' fate. And talk about money again. The World Bank and International Monetary Fund holds tremendous political power around the world by holding the power of the purse. They make loans. They charge interest. Uh, they can be very, very tough and hurt a lot of uh, poorer people in particular. And for many decades, they've wielded tremendous impact on developing nations, oftentimes causing widespread suffering by requiring full payback of interest on their loans. Where are they in all this? I haven't heard. Well, the IMF was supposed to deliver $400 million to Afghanistan a few days ago. And the, the way the country set up at the moment, it requires regular infusions of cash to pay civil servants to just to have the banks be able to fulfill people's daily needs. And um, owing to the instability, that money was not delivered. And it's unclear if it's going to be resumed or what's going to happen. Um, there's a lot of unknowns. One issue also is the Taliban is not very experienced or sophisticated at negotiating with international donors. Yeah. I mean, they're going to have to learn how to do. Yeah. Um, so it's a really big question. I, I can't really say at the moment what they will do, what sure. they might do. Uh, but certainly we could say that, you know, if there was a complete inability to find a compromise or, and there was a cessation of all international aid, including IMF uh, loans to Afghanistan or contributions to Afghanistan, uh, we would see a grave humanitarian crisis. And I think that another issue is that because it's all happened so quickly, it's difficult to really know what's going to happen. No one was expecting this to happen, that the country would fall in a week. Not even the Taliban themselves. They're quite surprised by their sudden... Uh, sudden victory in the country so a lot needs to be unpacked right now and people are uh, you know institutions even are floored about what happened you know it, it's interesting you know for 20 years just propping up this alleged government I and mean, we had the same darn thing in vietnam you know the people had no connection to the government in saigon and that didn't fall quite as quickly but you know there, there are there are similarities a lot of similarities we'll talk about uh, later and tell us, please, about the concerns in, in your article that are expressed by Ashley Jackson. She's co-director of the Center for the Study of Armed Groups at the Overseas Development Institute, and she's also author of Negotiating Survival, Civilian Insurgent Relations in Afghanistan. What, what concerns did Ashley Jackson express that you quoted? So, you know, Ms. Jackson has uh, a lot of experience in Afghanistan. She's negotiated with all parties there, including the Taliban, or had contact with them. And, you know, she's concerned about um, many of the same themes that I discussed here, but basically, are there going to be talks with the Taliban? Will there be some sort of uh, negotiation with them? Will there be like a punitive response in the wake of this uh, event in which they took over the country? It's, uh, you know, it, it, I've been speaking to experts on Afghanistan for the past two weeks constantly, and they're all kind of have a similar take, which is uh, they're all shocked. They're all uh, concerned about what's going to happen now. And she especially was concerned that, you know, if the international community walks away from Afghanistan now, 
there will be terrible consequences for many ordinary Afghans because as flawed as the system was that was put in place there for the last 20 years, you know, it's a system that people live under. And, you know, the U.S. system is, of course, much better, but has deep flaws and some people would like to abolish it. But if you just pull the rug out from people in any circumstance and walk away, then there's going to be a tremendous amount of chaos and suffering. And Afghans, Afghanistan is a very poor country, and the people don't have much way to by which to insulate themselves. So her concern was really about the international community's response now and the, you know, the consequences if they do choose to completely walk away. And if they take a hard line towards the Taliban, um, that does not include some sort of a prospect of reciprocity or, you know, trading something with them, you know, leveraging their need for money in exchange for uh, concessions on human rights, women's rights, or the status of uh, Afghans who work with the United States. So, you know, she's trying to, uh, like many people, she's trying to be a voice in the wilderness and impart some sort of uh, reason or uh, conciliatory nature in a very, very agonizing moment for everybody. And and being reasonable, you know, the, throughout the United States, the initial reaction, you know, we just see the the chaos at the airport and in the towns, and there's people, quite frankly, confuse ISIS and Al Qaeda with uh, the Taliban. And it's interesting that you point out that the Taliban's enemy was ISIS, and the fear, the fear is there. I I can't tell you how many people. Are, are afraid and the, when you have fear whipped up people don't necessarily uh, act in the most uh, positive and productive manner but it's important now that as you say they don't want chaos they want a st- stable Afghanistan now they have to do this this is their this is their motivation and, and this th- it's curious to me about their resources. You write that Afghanistan today is economically dependent on the international community in very basic ways. Do they not have valuable natural resources so they might be able to either go it alone or, or use that stuff as leverage? I don't know what natural resources they have, but I, I've heard they have a bunch of stuff. Yeah, there are a lot of rare, rare earths in Afghanistan, which are very important for production of uh, high-tech goods, cell phones and laptops and sensors and screens and things like that. Uh, some estimates say a trillion dollars worth potentially is located in Afghanistan. Uh, the issue is that they don't have the ability to, uh-huh. you know, security situations, security situations difficult there. Uh, they don't have, have the ability to you know, run the mining, processing, manufacture and export of these products. Or you know even just the extraction of the raw materials very difficult. They need foreign support. They need a stable environment and uh, investment. But the thing is, even if the U.S. leaves, this is also the counterpoint: is that there could be you know Chinese investment. China is right across the border from Afghanistan. They're very keen on working with the Afghan government, and they don't care about the nature of the government per se. They're willing to work with them, regardless. I would say from the perspective of uh, Afghans, and this includes the Taliban, if they're in power now, which seems likely, they do need to have a good relationship with the U.S. and the West as much as possible, because you don't want to be in a situation where your only foreign partner, your major foreign partner, is just one country. That country would be China. Uh, you want to be able to have leverage. You want to be able to have 
you know, leverage parties against each other, have a cooperative relationship with uh, the West as the alternate power broker. So, you know, I think that's also why they, they're trying to be as conciliatory as possible right now and their messaging. They're helping facilitate now the withdrawal of Americans and some Afghan allies of the United States from the country. They're not uh, killing them or trying to uh, prevent them to do that. They're trying to be perceived as a responsible partner with the uh, international community as much as possible. And secondly, they would like, the once the U.S. leaves, to not be an implacable enemy, but view them with some degree of uh, nuance so that they can continue getting some cooperation on things of shared interest. I'm sure. So they, you know, they need expertise. Like if you have various rare earth substances in the ground, you got to have some tools to get it out of the ground and ways to deliver whatever that stuff is. And that's, that's not always easy. It could be in the ground, but if you can't get it from point A to point B, you can't make any money. So they know they have to do that. Uh, wait, let me just see where we are. A little bit of noise there. Um, as, as I've said, it's one thing to wage a war to attack and tear down your enemy. It's quite another to govern. Now is the hard part for the Taliban. You quote Shah Zaman Farahi, who served as an economist in the Afghan Ministry of Finance until last year. He said, if the Taliban wants to continue with the current government civil staff structure and existing services such as health, education, and other basics, let alone expand and deliver more services, they will need international aid, end of quote. Why? Say more about what he's saying there. Why will they need that? Uh, well, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the uh, Afghan government was very is very reliant on international aid to fund basics of life in Afghanistan, like health care, uh, food provision of food and things like that. If that aid was suddenly pulled, there would be a humanitarian crisis tomorrow. It would be very devastating, and they don't want that to happen. They want to, they want the country to remain stable. So that's what uh, Mr. Farai is referring to, the uh, prospect of that aid being pulled and what would happen if that happened. And he was in favor of it, actually, because he wants to put pressure on the current government but he even acknowledged that it would be uh, something evil to do, uh, in the sense it would result in a lot of uh, human suffering if that were to happen, uh, which mm. the Taliban wants to avoid now because they're in charge of the country. Yes, they are. And again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we can't impose democracy on other countries. We can't. It, it's barely even democracy here. It's just hanging by a thread. So we're trying to keep democracy alive. Anyway, our guest uh, today is Mutaza Hussein, and we're discussing his article in The Intercept called The International Response to the Taliban's Ascent Will Shape Afghan's Fate. Without this aid, in terms of having the ability to pay for technical expertise and for qualified people just to keep the government functioning, isn't there a huge risk of losing the hearts and minds of the people? So... In other words, might a failure of the Taliban to govern and hold on to power serve the game plan of the U.S. and other Western powers? Or perhaps it could have the effect of pressuring the government to modify its behavior on human rights. Could it backfire the people perceiving it as being, you know, Afghanistan's being held hostage as with Cuba and then only strengthen the Cuban government? There, there's concern that, such, that any kind of sanctions or 
you know, looking tough because you've been humiliated might further anger and radicalize the population. It, it seems like it could blow either way, I'm guessing. Your thoughts? I think that's precisely what I'm, people are afraid is going to happen now. And I think, unfortunately, it's quite likely they're going to uh, they are angry now. They feel humiliated about what happened. And they would like, they don't want the next government that comes into power to be successful because that would compound the humiliation of losing the war in the first place. It's not to say the Taliban is destined to be successful anyways. They have serious problems governing. They're, much of the country rejects them. They're not a national liberation movement. The risk movement which came to power because everybody agreed that they hated the previous government imposed by the U.S. so much. Now, that said, you know, if by some chance they do send the power and they do govern reasonably well or if they governed better than the U.S. did when they were in Afghanistan, it would be profoundly humiliating. It would be a huge uh. repudiation to everything that happened in the last 20 years. And, you know, if you look, like, not to go so far back, Cuba was a great example, but if you go even further back, if you look at Haiti and other countries that maybe humiliated a more powerful country, France in that case, uh-huh. and, you know, they were quite vindictive about it, what they did later on, imposing sanctions and, uh, you know, charging them with all these debts, things like that. So I wouldn't put that past them. I wouldn't say that that's impossible to happen now. Mm. And, you know, it will be worse for Afghans because, you know, they didn't choose for the Taliban to take over the country. Most of them were against them. But they will suffer now if uh, there's a conflict between the U.S. and the Taliban. It won't be the U.S. that the, the Taliban government suffers per se. They'll have access to the state. They'll have ability to provide for themselves and the government to a certain degree will be ordinary people or something. That's interesting that that they didn't, the Taliban was not the choice of the majority of the people. Any, I mean, we don't have polling going on in Afghanistan, I don't think. I, I wonder how much of the population really has supported uh, the Taliban. I mean, it, it's often the case in many, many different wars where whoever can kick out the occupier is the one who gets the support of the people because they're, you know, even though the people don't really like them particularly, but they're the ones who can best kick out the occupier. Any sense of uh, of the support that the Taliban have had? Like what kind of percentage in the, in the country? I mean, I, maybe it's just a wild guess. I have no idea. Yeah, you know, it's hard to say. It's difficult to say. But, uh, you know, I think it's what you said, that they were the people who were against the people everybody hated. Yeah. And that was enough to generate a coalition that uh, led to the expulsion of those people. And yes. uh, as a result, here we are. And what happens next is unclear to anybody. And perhaps you've seen the classic film about the American war in Vietnam, Hearts and Minds. Anybody who hasn't seen it, I highly recommend it. Basically, in that the U.S. puppet governments in South Vietnam never had the hearts and minds of the people. Just never had it. To many people, it has appeared similar in Afghanistan, that the government of Kabul was quite distant to the majority of the people. A strong central government strikes me, and again, this is sort of a guess, as, as kind of a Western construct, not in the historical context of former Persian and Ottoman empires, central, powerful central governments. There are local leaders, often called tribal warlords in the Western media, and I suppose sometimes it's true. Is the Taliban different enough from the Western-imposed ideal 
of a you know, powerful central government, what are the chances of it creating a governing structure that will be able to hold on to the hearts and minds across Afghanistan? It is quite a challenge. It's a good question. Uh, I think that ultimately it's a very diverse country. It's geographically difficult to control by any one central power, as you said. All I can say is that I think that they may have a better chance of creating a system that makes sense than the U.S. did, because the U.S. came to the country without any understanding of history, even the graph of language. Uh, you know, one way or another, these people are from there, and it's up to them to figure out how to live. And if someone else came to the United States and started reorganizing things using violence and money uh, on a grand scale without knowing anything about the history of the country, the division of the country, or uh, anything else, you know, I can't imagine that they do a better job than even uh, my most disfavored group of you know, Americans who at least you know live here and understand uh, what the place is like. So, you know, we can only see, but I would say it would be better than the U.S. I, I can't help but think so. And, you know, there's the official economy, and then there's the informal economy. In Vietnam, the CIA allegedly worked with local opium organizations, very credible uh, information. I've heard that the U.S. similarly gave kind of a nod and a wink to the traditional opium economy in this otherwise largely infertile chunk of earth. Uh, have, have we not supported Afghanis' dependence on an opium economy? This underground economy could possibly provide billions of dollars in revenue. What part do you think the opium economy will play from here on out, greater or lesser than the previous government? What is the Taliban attitude toward the opium economy? Well, last time they were in power, they banned the production of opium entirely. Um, and then when the U.S. came, somehow the opium production skyrocketed. It became the world's number one source of opium, at least in the, like, Europe and Asia. It's unclear now what's going to happen uh, there's going to be an ideological pressure to shut down again. It's against their beliefs to have drug production profit off it. But they have a serious economic problem if they were too. So to that question, I'm not totally sure. But uh, it's certainly one of the challenges of the next government. Yeah, well, well there's, you know, there's a demand worldwide and there's a supply. I don't know. It's a tough uh, part of uh, capitalism to, to fight against. And I wonder how poor Afghanis are and how much food insecurity there is. And I wonder about the prospects under the Taliban. And, you know, in many, most wars, like in Vietnam, I don't think people cared as much about philosophy, political theory, as food, being able to eat. What, what is the situation with Afghanis and poverty and food insecurity? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. You can only judge by, I can only judge by international reporting and statistics. Uh, it's bad. It's uh, The situation is on par with... Uh, poorest countries in Asia and even sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, that's kind of a situation there right now in that sense. Yeah, there's a lot of poverty around. And if they can address that, that would help with the hearts and minds, I'm sure. It ain't easy, that's for sure. And Heather Barr, who is interim co-director of the Women's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch, says, we're currently advising donors, donors to Human Rights Watch not to cut off aid since more than 75% of the previous government's budget was funded by aid money. I would imagine that virtually all such donors were anti-Taliban, especially because of Taliban attitudes toward women. But of course, if their flow of donations come to 
comes to an abrupt halt as Barr says, Afghan women will be the ones hurt most. How will this resolve, do you think? We're talking, you know, about, uh, uh, f- you know, funders, people who, who send aid money. How do, you, how do you think this will resolve? Uh, that's, I don't know. That's actually a good question. No one can really answer this question right now. A lot of unknowns at the moment. Uh, we can only report what people are asking them to do. And, uh, yeah, as you said, they're asking not to cut aid. Let's see what happens right now. Well, we certainly hope they don't, that, uh, but, but I can imagine people might, well, you know, think, well, we hate the Taliban, so we're going to cut them off. And, uh, you know, when there was a boycott of South Africa for its bad policies, a lot of people got hurt. But then again, it did make a change in government. So it might not be off the table as a as a uh, part of a strategy of putting pressure on, uh, on the Taliban. Who knows? Time will tell. You point out, quote, the status of women, most of Afghanistan did not improve much as a result of the U.S. presence. Uh, say more about that, if you would, please. There's a lot of concern about the status and the rights of women. You're saying the status yeah. of women did not, in most of Afghanistan did not improve as a result of the U.S. presence. My sense is, and tell me if I'm wrong, that when there was the, the government that the Russians supported, women had a lot of rights. They could go to work, they could go to school, but then it was shut down. How, how did the status of women fare under the U.S. presence? Yeah, there was difference between urban and rural women in Afghanistan, of course. So basically, you know, in urban areas, like I mentioned earlier, there was some change or improvement in the status of women. But, uh, you know, 90% of the country is rural, so those women did not see much improvement at all, and their lives got a lot worse because there's war going on. So, you know, this whole thing that it was for the benefit of women, it's very blinkered, it's looking at the, the very small percentage of the population and ignoring a much larger percentage, which is suffering as a result of the war being waged there. And and some Democrats in Congress in the U.S., notably women, have very strenuously objected to Biden's pullout. These are Democrats citing concerns about women in Afghanistan. Uh, clearly, our military cannot stay forever. 20 years is long enough, especially since it just didn't have any real support. You say the return of the Taliban marks a potentially dire turning point for educated urban women. End of your quote. The, the women are making a point to stand up before, or the Taliban, rather, are making the point to stand up before the world, insisting they've changed, that women will not lose their rights, they will be able to hold down jobs, girls can go to school. That would be a really big shift indeed. How and when will it be clear how real their new cultivated image is? And how can the world not just trust, but verify? What can be done to to verify, not just trust? When can, we, when can we judge on this? Uh, well, you know, the, you can judge by the level of access that they give to international groups to monitor what's actually happening in the country. Uh, it's, it'll take time. It'll take time to actually verify what's going on or get a sense of what's happening. But you can see if they close the country off and let anyone see what's going on, then inevitably there will be some... Something they're hiding. But if they allow access and they allow international groups and the press to monitor freely to some degree, then we can have greater confidence of what's actually going on, how it matches their rhetoric. That's, that's obviously true. You know, if they allow access, if, if they allow people to come in and see, the reporters, uh, I would think it, they would see that it's in their interest to do so, but I'm not running the show over there. And again, looking at history, the U.S. at the very least enabled the rise of the Taliban, first by using them to fight the Russians in the 
context of the Cold War, then refusing their offer to surrender in 2001, shortly after we invaded. People don't remember this, but they, the Taliban offered to surrender in 2001, but we turned it down. I wonder how the fact that we were the occupiers and the only effective fighting force taking us on was the Taliban. Did we, did we unwittingly consolidate their strength? And if we isolate them, as we did with Cuba, will that effectively push them into more radicalism? What do you think? Certainly possible. Certainly possible. It's hard for me to prognosticate what's going to happen, but, uh, you know, it's just that uh, if you don't give them a stake in what's happening, any any party, not just them, but uh, any party you have a dispute with, you don't give them a stake in the future, then you're just going to radicalize and they have no they have no reason to compromise on the issues that you find important in your dealings with them. So they're no different. And it depends really how the U.S. approaches things now, whether they have a stable equilibrium with them or whether they return to the cycle of conflict which led to the war in the 90s. Yeah, again, we will see. One of the excuses used to legitimize our invasion of Afghanistan was the allegation that Afghanistan was harboring terrorists, letting themselves be used as a base for international terrorist groups. And, and as you mentioned, and this may surprise a lot of people, they didn't like ISIS. The question is, will this happen again? Is And beyond that... Is there a universally accepted definition of terrorist? What do you think will will happen with, you know, the the international terrorist groups that had, at least allegedly, used Afghanistan as a uh, as a base for operations throughout the rest of the world, and do they have this, a clear understanding of what uh, what is a terrorist? Uh, well, you know, I, like I said, it's hard for me to prognosticate. But as I said before. You know, they don't want the country to be used to attack the West because it resulted in uh, the destruction of their previous government. So they have strong incentives not to allow that to happen. Regarding definition of terrorism, it's very subjective, as you said. I mean, different people consider the Taliban terrorists. Their supporters not consider themselves terrorists. They don't consider themselves terrorists. It all depends on the way you look at it. Um, not really a term that's uh, very useful, in my opinion. <laughs> True. One person's freedom fighters, another person's terrorist. That was certainly the case in the war against uh, War of Independence in 1776 here. And it's all, you know, all wars, really. And as the Intercept News Agency reports, turn on the cable news and you'll hear a parade of ex-military and Bush administration's officials, many with undisclosed ties to defense contractors, castigating President Joe Biden for a crisis of their own making. The American news media, what, what is the power of their influence? Are they at all open to legitimizing the new Afghan government? I mean, we've seen, you know, it's, it's so much theater that once, you know, a, a sense of drama starts moving, it's, it, you know, once the ball starts rolling, that's the way it is. And right now, you know, the new Afghan government is, uh, you know, horrible, ISIS, going to cut off heads, uh, things like that. Uh, but the, the, I wonder about the, the ties uh, of the uh, uh, former Bush administration people to defense contractors. You know, they're there in the background. They, have, they made a lot of money from this. They're one group that made out quite well from, well, this and any war. And do you think, 
What do you sense of, of the American media? I'm sure you've had a chance to look at uh, a few of the uh, uh, networks, the uh, cable news, etc. networks. Do, do you think, do you, sense, do you sense any uh, consideration of being open to legitimizing and recognizing the new Afghan government? Or are they just going to keep it up? Uh, well, you know, it's hard to talk with the media per se, usually because it's not monolith. Right. But in this, in this case, we've seen a uh, pretty you know, consistent message from at least the mainstream establishment media that they're, they took it very personally that the war was lost. I think I had reasons for that are not fully clear to me why, but uh, they're not happy about it. And, you know, it's not a question about legitimizing it or not. Can they cover this issue fairly and uh, impartially? I'm kind of skeptical in the camp. They're taking it very, very personally, almost as though they were combatants in the conflict. No. Not. Well, of course, many of them were embedded with the soldiers who, you know, if you're embedded, it's a little bit tough to give a uh, <laughs> a neutral report, an obje- you know, or close to objective when, you, when you're uh, uh, embedded. And, uh, you know, the, the CIA is not dumb in all the uh, national security agencies. They know how to influence the news for sure. And so this probably, I mean, <laughs> not being told what, you know, or, or hinted at what they should write. Uh, is is challenging for these uh, <laughs> news reporters for sure. Having to do their own work, I know it's it's hard to do. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're talking with uh, Mutaza Hussein, who's uh, written the international response to the Taliban's ascent will shape Afghan's fate. The Palestinian writer and activist Iyad el-Baghdadi, co-author of the Middle East Crisis Factory, says, having once been an Islamist myself when I was much younger, I can tell you with the wisdom of hindsight that a lot of it is really about identity and very little of it is about spirituality. We feel humiliated by the West and alienated from our own pre-colonial identities. Colonialism and modernity a perfect storm that severed our connection with ourselves. We say we want to bring Islam back, but what we really want back is our lost selves. What lesson is is there in what he said for the Western powers to learn? Uh, that's a good question. I think it's kind of really a lesson for them themselves to learn and to work out what they want that to mean themselves. Uh, my opinion is that the U.S. should just stay out of these countries and since we have trade with them, they can have relations with them, and not try to use violence and money to uh, reshape them in their own image. I don't think they even do this with good intentions in the first place. I think they have their own interest in trying to capitalize on in the war, sort of becoming profitable or beneficial to people's careers. That's what happens. Right. But, yeah, I, what yeah, I said is uh, I think it's mostly an issue for you know, people living in these countries to figure out their identities and uh, things like that. It's not for the U.S. to concern itself with or take a great interest in other people's problems. Yeah, and, and respecting other people's identities. I know there are people who think the U.S. has to rule the world, that we are the natural leaders of the world, but other people like to have their identities. Imagine that. And it's not what the colonialists want to dictate to them. And, and just for, for clarification... There are various different factions of Islam. Is it the case that the Taliban is is Sunni and that there are Shia and Sikh and other minorities there as well? Are are they uh, Sunni affiliated or is that? I I don't I really don't know. Do you? Yeah, yeah, they're they're, they're Sunni. They're Sunni. Exactly. So the the only I was trying to think of 
other extremist Sunni Islamic governments, and all I can think of is Saudi Arabia. Their treatment of women and of dissent is hardly exemplary, but golly gee, we do a lot of business with them. <laughs> After America's previous longest war, we finally started to do business with Vietnam, as we could have beginning when the French lost in 1954. Do you think that, and this is again sort of guessing, you know, looking at crystal ball, but also you know a bit about Afghanistan. Do you think that once it is out of our orbit, like Vietnam became so, and other countries, will we recognize and do business with Afghanistan? I mean, clearly, I would think, it's in everybody's best interest to do so, even, I mean, quite perhaps mostly women, women and girls. Do you think that once, you know, it's completely out of our orbit, that a little bit of time goes by, that they have a somewhat functioning government that will recognize and start to do business with Afghanistan and start to include them in the uh, uh, community of, of nations? I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, it's, like I said, it's hard to sort of prognosticate uh, the future. Maybe. If they have some interest in doing so, then they will. But uh, you know, only time will tell. Only time will tell. Well, if, if you were uh, running U.S. Uh, uh, foreign policy and uh, relations with Afghanistan and uh, advising President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken, what would you suggest for what we do from here? How's that? <laughs> You know, I don't know. It's uh, I would say, you know, be keep an open mind and be pragmatic about uh, what's possible and try to minimize the harm to people in Afghanistan who uh, the U.S. has really taken responsibility for by shaping their country the last 20 years. Uh, they can't, you know, have everything they want to have in that country clearly now after the Taliban took it over, but they can at least do what they can to uh, minimize the negative impact on ordinary people now who are going to live under that government. And, you know, it's interesting. We don't do that in Saudi Arabia. You know, we let them get literally get away with murder, quite literally. And they, you know, they're very brutal, cutting off heads and, you know, really tough on women. Yet we do business with them. Yet they're a, a strategic ally of ours, the, the Sunni, uh, you know, extremist government of Saudi Arabia. We do business with them. It's just, uh, you know, ain't nobody's business but my own and their own. I, I hope we can do it, and I, I don't know, I think this is an opportunity here, but uh, we will see. Uh, you, so you write regularly for The uh, the Intercept, is that correct? And if people want to read uh, more of your stuff in The Intercept, what can you point them to on that internet thing? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm on uh, uh -huh. Twitter, M-A-Z-M-H-U-S-S-A-I-N. -S -S That's my Twitter. You can follow me there, and my stuff is mostly posted there. All right. Well, let's hope for uh, better days ahead for Afghanistan. Boy, it sure was a quick end, a long introduction to the end, but uh, let's hope for better things here on out. Hey, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, thank you for having me. Thanks. Субтитры
la boca y mi furia se come a la gente porque muerde aunque no tenga dientes el dolor no me causa problemas hoy los dolores recitan poemas el mundo me lo como sin plato el miedo a mí me limpia los zapatos el fuego lo derretió y las pesadillas no duermen porque piensan en mí hoy puedo ver lo que el otro no vio y los pongo a rezar aunque no crean en dios hoy las lágrimas lloran antes de morir y a los libros de historia los pongo a escribir que le tiemblen las piernas al planeta tierra hoy yo vine a ganar y estoy hecho de guerra y hecho de guerra y estoy hecho de guerra y estoy hecho de guerra Soy el boquete que dejó la bomba que cayó, lo que fecundó la madre que me parió. Desde que nací soy parte de este menú porque yo llegué al óvulo. Antes que tú soy la selva que corre descalza, en el medio del mar sobrevivo sin balsa. Soy el caudal que mueve la corriente, los batallones que chocan de frente. Mis rivales que vengan de a dos hoy, ni siquiera los truenos me alzan la voz. Soy tu derrota, tus dos piernas rotas, el clavo en el pie que traspasó la bota. Soy la Estrategia de cualquier combate Hoy se gana o se pierde, no existe el empate Soy las penas de tus alegrías La guerra de noche y la guerra de día 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 